Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Let's read through verse 43 together. It says, When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, and so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, as she is a sinner. Verse 40, And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owned, uh, owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, and so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Father, I ask that you would open our spirits, Lord, to your word this morning. That you would change lives. For the Pharisee in the room, for the sinful woman in the room, and everybody else. That you would take center stage and you'd speak to us where we are and that your spirit would come and break us. That we would weep at your feet. That we would adore you, Lord Jesus, for the grace that you've poured out to us. And so we just ask for you to do your work this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. You know, verse 36, it says, it tells us that Jesus was invited to have dinner at the house of a Pharisee, and he reclined at the table. Um, some of us are new to reading the Bible, they don't even know what a Pharisee is. Might as well be speaking Japanese. But anyways, a Pharisee was one of two major religious, Jew, Jewish religious leaders in that day. Those two major political and religious factions, they're all one um, in the days of Jesus. And the other being Sadducees. And the Sadducees did not believe in the, in the resurrection, and that was the major distinction. And that, obviously, we know the joke is why they're Sadducee. And uh, the Pharisees, who were strict observers of the law of Moses, um, which is the Ten Commandments, starts with the Ten Commandments. So the law of Moses basically is don't have any other gods but God, don't make idols, don't misuse the name of the Lord, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Honor your mother and father. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. And do not covet. And so those are the Ten Commandments. And those are the, that's the law of Moses in its core, in its essence, basically. But in addition to these Ten Commandments given by Moses, the Pharisees had developed a system of 613 laws, and 365 of those were negative laws, do not do this, and then another uh, 248 positive laws, do this. And so they were the legalists of the day. Well, what does it technically mean not to steal? And so they would break out into all these little tiny crazy different laws, and it, would just, it was just this huge burden upon uh, something that was supposed to be very simple uh, upon people. And they were the legalists of the day, 
And that is that they, they believe that by keeping these rules, even the Ten Commandments, that they were right with God. And so they focused on the external. They were constantly focused on the external. Yet inwardly, they were totally against God. And because they cared more about the external and, and, and po- their position of authority and the praise of men and what people thought of them, when Jesus came on the scene and he started preaching something contrary to what they were preaching, actually the fulfillment of the law, the kingdom of the heart, that God is concerned with the heart and then the external conforms to what happened inside, not the other way around. Outside in is religion, inside out is relationship, being born again. When Jesus came preaching about the kingdom of repentance, they, 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 they were, Jesus was stepping on their turf. And they were really, really, really upset. So much so that they wanted to kill Jesus and did kill Jesus. Now, not all Pharisees were like this. Not all the Pharisees were like this. You know, we, we, we often paint in a, bright, a broad brush. We know that there are exceptions. There were some who repented. Acts 15.5, for those of you who are taking notes, tells us that some Pharisees believed in Jesus. They still had issues. They still struggled with legalism, but they believed. Nicodemus, remember in John chapter 3, came to Jesus at night. And uh, John 19, uh, 38 through 42 also talks about how Nicodemus had taken the body of Jesus along with Joseph of Arimathea and had buried uh, Christ. And so we believe that he was one of the Pharisees and, and that he possibly had, had followed Christ, had believed that he was the Messiah. And, and the greatest of all the examples of the Pharisees was the Apostle Paul who wrote the New Testament, most, most of the New Testament, right? He was himself a Pharisee. And in Philippians chapter 3, 5 through 9, Paul speaks of himself being a Pharisee. He says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. This would be in keeping with the the law, right? Uh, And I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees, he says, who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. And that was a different, that was one of the defining distinctives of a Pharisee, the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. And that's what a Pharisee was really known for and was looked up to uh, by the people for following the law without fault. The way that they wore their clothes, the way that they would eat in public, the way that they said things, the way that they prayed, all these things just gave off this incredible, intimidating self-righteousness, but to the person who didn't know the scriptures, they would assume that that was righteousness. And that's why Jesus in Matthew 23 would say, you, go, you travel across, um, across seas to make one convert, and yet you make them twice the son of hell as you. That's how to win and influence people by Jesus. Because they would then follow in the footsteps of the Pharisees, which was going off a cliff. Paul continues, he says, I once, and this is the Philippians chapter 3, 5 through 9, verse, verse 7 says, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything is worthless. No word worthless is it's dung. Boop. 
Everything is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, as refuse, so that I could gain Christ and become, and become one with Him. He says, I no longer count my own righteousness through obeying the law. Let's repeat that. I no, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. See, the Pharisees thought you could become right with God by following this set of rules. And what happened? Paul, who was a Pharisee, who was flawless in all these things, finds out that by keeping the law, that you only have to err in one aspect of the law, one time, to make you guilty of it. How many lies does it take to make you a liar? (laughs) Guilty. And God's law is perfect. And so we find that we're all condemned under God's law. God's law wasn't to uh, make us more righteous and holy. It was to show us how far we have fallen and to point us to a Savior. And that's what Paul says. My righteousness doesn't come from obeying the law. It comes through Christ. Now many of you are going, well, then I can do whatever I want. Yay, I want that one. We'll see. Jesus makes it even worse. When you get into Matthew chapter 5, he says, it says, you've heard it say, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you even look or think about that in your heart, you're guilty of that act before God. Holy moly. What about anger? He talks about that. He says, if, if it's not about murdering someone, it says, do not kill. Well, that's one of the commandments. Well, what happens? If you even say things that are bad and, and he escalates in there, he says, you're going to be guilty of not only earthly troubles, but before God, if you have that in your heart towards someone, you're going to stand guilty before God. And so Jesus' standard is even worse. It's about the kingdom of the heart, not the external what I do and don't do. It's where does that stuff come from? It comes from who I am. And the law shows us that we are broken. We're broken in need of a Savior. And so Paul says, I do not count on my own righteousness, right standing through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous, right standing with God through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. So Pharisees' righteousness, which is that self-righteousness, was based upon what we call works. Working out these things. Keeping the law, the do's and don'ts. Any of you struggle with that? And Paul says God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith in Christ. And this is an important background for today's message. It's really important in this message. And the question is, is right standing with God by works or by faith? And God's going to compare and contrast two people um, in our story. And so verse 36 says that one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. We know what a Pharisee is and what they believed and how they were. And he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. A little different uh, than what we do in the West. They're on the floor. There's kind of a couch. There's a square or circle table. I don't know. It's a table. It's lower to the floor. And you didn't sit at it. You reclined at it. There was like a couch. And you'd lean towards it and your feet were away from the table. Because in those days, you walked around in sandals and your feet were dirty and stinky. Right? How many of you guys have kids that go, go wash your feet, you stink, you know what I mean? Well, imagine a whole bunch of guys around a table, right? And so they want the feet as far away from as possible. Still today, the feet are, are, are uh, looked at in the Middle East as, and in Eastern cultures as, 
as really a dirty part of the body. Remember they threw a shoe at George Bush? Remember that in that press conference? The reason why they did that was an insult. Remember when Saddam's, uh, Saddam Hussein's uh, uh, statue came tumbling down and the Kurds took their shoes off and smacked them on the face with their shoes? And we're all looking at that going, what are you doing? That's it. It's very like you don't, feet are the worst, okay? That's kind of where we're at. And verse 37 says, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, and so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, it doesn't say what that sinful life was, but most likely she was a prostitute. That's basically um, what, what, what it's inferring here. And she is identified as a woman who lived a sinful life, and the idea is that she had been living a life of continual, perpetual sin. And obviously, it was a Jewish culture against the law of God. It was continually, perpetually against the Lord. It was something that was, it did not please the Lord. And she learned that Jesus was at a Pharisee's house, and she came with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, this is not the same woman in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and John 12. Those are two different women. Uh, we are in the area of Galilee here. That took place in, the, in, in, in Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem. Um, and that was uh, Mary, Lazarus' uh, sister. Lazarus got raised from the dead. His sister was the one who anointed his head with oil. Um, this woman anointed Jesus' feet, as we'll read. Mary anointed Jesus' head. And so this woman was not uh, Mary, the sister of Lazarus that we're reading about today. Um, and so this woman is not that woman. So there's two different accounts. But this woman was a notorious sinner, and she came with that alabaster jar of perfume. It doesn't say how much the perfume was worth like it does in the other accounts with Mary, but it was of great value, no doubt, to her. But can you imagine what would have to motivate such a sinful outcast of a woman to come into a Pharisee's house? Remember Pharisee? I gave you that background so that you'd see the contrast. You've got this guy who keeps the law to a T, and everybody around him snaps in shape, and there's this religious vibe going on. And yet, she comes into this house. What in the world would cause this sinful woman to come into that environment and come to Jesus? We'll talk about that in just a bit. Verse 38. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. The word for weeping here uh, means that she was mourning deeply. It was just like the floodgates of her soul had just been broken. She was overwhelmed. It's the same word that when Peter denied Christ, for the third time, it says that he went away and wept bitterly. Same word in the Greek. It's the same word that describes the disciples were doing on the resurrection morning. If you remember when Mary Magdalene came and said, hey, Jesus is risen, and they ignored her. And it says that they were mourning and weeping. Same word. They were in such sorrow that Jesus was dead. So this speaks of a deep emotion. So much so that she began to wet his feet with her tears. I don't know if you've ever cried that hard before, but it's just pouring out of her. 
and it's so much that it wets his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. She was just undone before the Lord. She was undone and broken before the Lord. Her tears were falling on Jesus' feet. Remember the cultural implications here about feet. She was at what was considered the, the, the dirtiest part of a body. and she, So what does that say about where she is in her heart and her worth and what she's experienced over what she's done? There's a bankruptcy in her soul. There's a poverty. There isn't pride. She wiped his feet with her hair. She was cleaning his feet with her tears in her hair. As we will read, Jesus' feet had not been washed. He'd been walking and trekking around all around the cities, and we're pretty sanitary around here, but if you've ever been into an unplumbed um, culture, she is weeping, and her tears are washing his dirty feet. And she's using her hair to clean his feet. And she, not only did that, what did she do? She kissed his feet. She was kissing his feet. The word kiss here is to kiss much, again and again, tenderly. It's the word that was used when the prodigal son came back to his father. In verse 20 of John, uh, Luke 15, we read, about, it says, but when he saw uh, the father saw his son a great way off. His father saw him and had compassion on him and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. It wasn't just like a kiss. It was just over and over and over. And she poured perfume on his feet. You know, perhaps it was expensive. It doesn't say. And as I was thinking about this, my mind went to Proverbs chapter 7, where it says in verse 16 through 18, Speaking of a prostitute, my bed is spread with beautiful blankets, with colored sheets of Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloe and cinnamon. Come, let us drink of our fill of love until morning. I know there's a lot to say about, um, you know, the cost of the perfume and all those things, but my mind went to that, and it's just a thought that if this woman truly was a prostitute, I, I think this bottle might have been the perfume that she might have enticed men with in her bedroom. Just a thought. And no doubt it was costly, but it very well could be that she's demonstrating a heart that is broken over sin as she pours out that perfume on his feet. You know, once it was used for evil, now it's used for worship. You know, I think about that with my guitar you know, and just things like that, things that were really precious to me that I once used to profane the name of God and to build up self. Um, those things are, are, were laid out before the Lord. They're His now, you know, and they're poured out at His feet for His use, for His kingdom, for His glory. You know, I'm just wondering if maybe perhaps that might be going on. Again, it's a speculation, just a thought, but it makes sense to me. Regardless, she's broken and she is laying 
her heart and life and her sin before the feet of Jesus. She was poor in spirit. She was willing to break all the social constructs to wash Jesus' unwashed feet with her tears in her hair and to pour out what she had to him. Take note of that heart. Take note of that heart. Now verse 39. This is when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this. He said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And that she was. Jesus doesn't deny it later on. Calls her out on it. But the Pharisee had no compassion for this woman whatsoever. No compassion. When, she, when such a sinful woman was coming in and just breaking and laying her life before the Lord in just repentance, nothing happened. What, what clicked in his head? Judgment, judgment. Judge Jesus, and he judged the woman. You're not a prophet, and you are a sinner. Those two things popped into his head. And this is what happens in the heart of a man or a woman who has a self-righteous legal relationship with God. You are constantly looking to see if people are keeping the rules. Because if they aren't, then they're not right with God. And you're going to make them that way. I've struggled with legalism. Anybody struggle with legalism? Two of us. But if you have that self-righteous, rule-keeping relationship with God, man, that's just going to go down a hard path. Instead of that love relationship with God based upon faith, by God's grace, you know? The Pharisee was looking at the external alone. He just kept looking at the outside. Any of you ever look at the outside? Just constantly looking at the outside. This person is driving me nuts. If they would just start doing this. You know, when I, when I run into situations, and I wish I could do this on myself, which is biblical, but where I see things that are broken, um, quite often, many of us, we try to get them to stop acting a certain way and start another way. Anyone else do that? And, and we can fall into that with parenting too, I think, as well, um, which is important, you know, don't, you know, stop antagonizing your sister. It's just going to stop, right? Or to stop, you know, doing this or that. We understand that. But do we go for the heart? Do we go to the why? Why they're doing what they're doing? Do you ever speak to that level? When we see people who are acting out of place and out of kind, we, do we instantly just judge them? Oh, you're an inconvenience, you're this, you're that. Or do we wonder, what's going truly on in that person's heart that would lead them to act like that? The, the, the iceberg is, is kind of how I view it. In other words, we're seeing the very tip of the iceberg, the action, when actually what, what causes them to, to uh, act out is what they believe and who they are. That's the part that needs to be changed. Jesus says you need to be born again, not go to church. Let me tell you, when you're born again, you are not going to miss church very much because you want to be around the people of God. Amen? You want to be around the Spirit. You're going to be at Wednesday nights and all that stuff. Now, see, legalism would say you've got to be at these things. 
Amen? In order to be right with God. Amen? No, you don't. But I definitely begin to question my own heart when I see myself on the outskirts. The Pharisees were looking at that external part because Jesus didn't jump up right away in revolt when when she touched him because Jesus didn't conform to one of his 613 man-made rules. Therefore, Jesus must not be a prophet. He had this formula in his head. Well, Jesus was a prophet, and he demonstrates it here by reading the Pharisee's mind, verse 40. (laughs) And Jesus answered, and Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender, one of them 500 denarii and the other 50. A lot of money. Let's just put it that, that way. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, and so he forgave them both their debts. Now, which of them loves him more? Simon, that's the guy's name, replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. So Jesus responds to Simon's thinking. And Simon's the the, the Pharisee, we find out, and he tells him a parable. Two people owed a moneylender money. Anybody ever been in debt before? Ah, it's horrible. Anybody been in debt you can't get out of? And you look at the little chart that the credit card company gives you, and it says when, in, in you know, 2099, you will finally pay it off paying your, your, what are, your minimum payment. And you're like, oh my gosh, that's horrible. This is, you're just like, this is never going to happen. Am I speaking your language? One had a big debt he couldn't pay. One had less of a debt that he couldn't pay. Neither could repay any debts. And they were forgiven by the, the moneylender. Com- he had compassion on them. Imagine if your credit card company just came and said, oh, we see that you're under this huge debt and just wanted to call and harass you to tell you you're forgiven. Click. You know? <laughs> How many of you got that call? <laughs> and Jesus asked this, this question, and, and this is a really important question for today. Which one of them will love the one who forgave him more? Which one's going to love more? You know, for some reason, several months back, I was telling Christine about this, I watched like four hours of the show called Undercover Boss. I mean, it was like crack TV. I mean, you're just like, <laughs> like what in the world? Why am I binge watching this? Don't judge me. <laughs> That's a couple chapters back. But the premise is you got the CEO um, of, of a company, and he's, he's relatively distanced from his employees, and so they wouldn't recognize him usually if he walks in the room. So he does, they, they get him to do some kind of makeup thing, and, it's un, and, and he comes into where the employees are working, and the idea is that they won't be able to recognize him. They don't know who he is. They don't know he's affiliated with the company. Either he's another employee in training, or he's on a reality TV show, doing something. And so there's always some kind of ploy that would throw them off the scent. And so he's just going to be one of the guys. She's just going to be one of the gals type of thing. Um, and so they don't know who they are. And the boss spends a few days getting to know uh, really how, how, the, how the business works. If what they're putting together in the boardroom or in meetings is really practically working out, that's one aspect. But also just gets to know the people. Does this really work? 
they're finding out quite oftentimes, like, why in the world do we make this decision? Or how can we make changes? And, and they're asking questions to these uh, employees, and the employees are giving great advice. They're like, well, we've got these buttons on the fryers that don't work, and they don't replace them. We've asked a hundred times, and blah, blah, blah. And, and you know, and, and he, you know, he's sitting there frustrated because the chicken doesn't get out on time or whatever it might be. And he's starting to feel what they're feeling, right? And a few days go by, and, and, and you find out that he starts to have more relationships, as we do with people in, in our place of employment. And he's talking with them about their personal lives and their families and why they have this job and what they're doing and all this stuff. And you find out all these things that a lot of them are in debt. A lot of them want to go to school, can't go to school. A lot of them have the reason why they're working is because their parents have had some kind of illness. And, and these just, they're in this minimum wage position with no skill, and there's a huge amount of debt and weight and it's just a mountain that they cannot remove. There's these varying degrees of personal issues that commu- get communicated to the boss. And so there comes a time when these employees are called into corporate and the boss is no longer disguised. They mostly don't recognize him. He explains who they were and they're like, oh my gosh, what's up, right? And that's the wonderful thing. And so they reveal, uh, the, the CEOs or the bosses, they, report, they reveal who they are and everybody's in shock. And the boss begins to tell them how much they mean to the company and about the previous conversations and, 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 and what a great job they did. Obviously, they edit out the ones who weren't were that great. And, and they usually give them a raise. You know, well, we know we're going to give you $2 an hour raise. And, and some people are just like, man, thank you so much. You know, there's just this gratitude. And you, and, and you can see that. And then some of them have been under such weight that that little raise means so much they begin to tear up. You know, that $2 an hour, it, it translates into something into their life, and they begin to tear up. And it doesn't stop there because the boss starts to say, remember how you told me you were, you know, you were trying also to work towards a degree? Well, we want to give you $10,000 to pay for your tuition for this next year. And they just like, are what? What are you talking about, you know? And, and we heard that you were $15,000 in debt, and so we're going to go ahead and pay off your $15,000 of debt. And by the way, we heard your, parents, your, parent, your father's medical bills were so and such, and so we're, we're going to go ahead and give you that to pay for that. And basically just wipes out all these, this huge mountain that was upon them and gives them, and, and they're just crying. They're just mourning and weeping and, and just like, are you kidding me? And, and I'm mourning and crying. I'm not like, I'm not biblically crying. I'm just kind of crying, you know, with them. No, I was like flat out crying. I'm like, Aah! you know, we're all crying together, you know. It's pretty funny. But, you know, and then, and then they go, can I, can, I, can I hug you? You know, because they're like the boss, you know, like, yeah. And the boss is crying and they're all hugging him and stuff. And then, and then they've got clever because they don't do commercials between episodes. They just go straight to the next one. And so there I am for hour two. And you got to wait because you want to see the grace poured out again, amen? You know, you're just waiting for that moment, and we're all crying again and happy, and it just happens over and over and over, and you realize, i got to stop this, but you don't want to. And Jesus says to Simon, now which of them are going to love him more? I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Jesus says, you have judged correctly. And then, verse 44, he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house, and you did not give me any water for my feet. You're supposed to do that in their culture. You're supposed to wash your feet. Remember the night before Jesus died, what did he do? He took on the role of a servant, and he 
got on his knees and he washed his disciples' dirty feet one by one. He said, I came into your house, Simon, and, and you didn't wash my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, Simon. Verse 45, you didn't give me a kiss as was a custom when someone would come into your house. But this woman, from the time I had entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. The dirtiest part, she has not stopped kissing. You did not put oil on my head as was custom after being in the sun on a hot day. But she came. She's poured perfume on my feet. The humility there. In verse 47, this is big. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Did Jesus skirt the issue of her sin? No. Her sins were what? Many. Jesus does not pretend like our sins don't exist. He doesn't because he would take those many sins upon himself, the many sins that you've committed, the many sins that I've committed. They aren't light to him. But he said, her sins, which are many, are what? Forgiven. Mountain gone. As her great love has shown, as her great love has shown, because she has been forgiven, her love flowed out of that. Let's repeat that. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Now, what would cause this woman to walk into a Pharisee's house and pour out her very soul in worship to Jesus? She loves him. Because he first loved her. She's forgiven. Love goes right past law. <laughs> it goes straight to the arms of Jesus. I love that. Love. Her love for Jesus is demonstrated in her abandoned worship for him. Her love for Jesus was demonstrated in her worship of him. Do you love Jesus? Is it demonstrated in your worship? And this is our spiritual act of worship, that we live as living sacrifices to the Lord. Not only singing to Him. You know, I, I know we have cultures, right? And so just as a worship leader, I want to sing to Him, right? But I understand it's work. I understand I'd rather not. I'm not guilt-tripping you. I'm just talking about what goes on in my mind. But I began to train my mind and focus my mind upon Jesus and who He is and what He's done for me. And then the gratitude opens up from there. And then the words flow after I choose to remember as I, as I love and I sing to Him. That's the same thing it is with sharing your faith and loving and being around one another and all those things. If we are not living in light of His forgiveness and His grace for us, we're going to be a loveless church. I'm not saying we are, but we're in danger of it. 
the way that we show our love for Jesus is in response to his grace for us. And let me tell you, when I, when I see it in my own life, when I see it in your lives to where there isn't a, much care for Jesus and the things of Jesus, and I know that's a judgment call, but let's just say it, it's a good one. It shows me I'm disconnected from that relationship. I haven't really taken in the depths of, of what I've been forgiven of. I'm not walking in that forgiveness and that grace. There just isn't that, wow, I can't believe that you've lifted that off of me. And that's a work of the Holy Spirit. You can't muster that up. That's something the Lord has to do within our hearts as we're in the Word, as we're in fellowship and all these things. The Lord, He just, by His grace, does that. He frees us up. You see, for some of us this morning, we're more concerned about what people think than what He's done for us. How many of you are more concerned about what people think than what He's done for you? How many of you are more concerned about who's listening to you sing, I'm using that as an example, than what He has done for you? You're more concerned about Simon than Jesus. I'm just talking about anywhere not even singing at church. I'm just saying life practically, you know what I mean? And when you see someone just serving and worshiping, abandon just their love to the Lord and they're just, just wholehearted about it, something within you, within me, sometimes goes, oh, that's annoying. Because it kind of just shows the hardness of my own heart, doesn't it, sometimes? I'm guilty of it. But when we allow the Lord to show us the depth, not only of our sin, and we believe the message of the gospel, that God executed His Son in my place, in your place, that that Jesus died on the cross for your sin, for my sin, all of our sin, past, present, future, the little ones and the great ones, the public ones, the hidden ones, when we allow the Holy Spirit to bring us to our knees as the grace of God is spilled out upon us undeservingly, when that happens, it changes you. It changes how you live. It changes how you respond to the Lord. And it flows out of our lives in action, in worship. So you just begin to respond to God in love, in a radical life of love. And that's what crazy love is kind of about. But you sing, even if you can't hold the tune. You serve no matter what your skills. You share Christ like this woman without words or with words. You love one another by putting the body of Christ, which is Christ, as a priority in your life, you know? Just practical applications. You you give money. Yes, money. I said the word money. To provide for His people and His gospel. Me too, Right? You can't go long without being in His Word because what He says is like honey on your lips. It feeds your soul. It's sweet. Oh, Jesus, I I need to hear from you today. I haven't heard you speak to my heart. Oh, gosh. You crack open the Word and His Spirit just starts speaking just one word and you're like, thank you.
You pray without ceasing because you know he loves you and he hears you and he's going to answer you and he'll lead you for as long, for, for eternity. And he'll lead you for his, towards his will. That's who he is. And you love much because you realize how much you've been forgiven and how much you've been loved. The grace of God through faith in Jesus. But you see where there's a lack of that demonstration of love for Christ, it reveals something within our hearts. And I think we need to be careful and watch that within ourselves. Am I a Simon or am, am I this, like this woman? What do I more gravitate towards in my life? And forget personality. I don't care about your personality. You don't care about mine. Some people are more charismatic, I'm more reserved. You know where your heart is, amen, in general. You know when you're kind of like, eh, I don't want to. Or, okay, I should, but I don't want to. But I will. You know, you know, you know the war that's going on. You know, either you were never forgiven when there's that lack. In other words, you've never experienced the grace of God in your life and you're playing church. Or you've left your first love. And Revelation 2, 1 through 5, Jesus is speaking to the church in Ephesus, a doctrinally sound church. They had Bible teaching that was awesome. All that great stuff. He says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write these things. You, uh, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, church. You, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and you have endured hardships for my name, have not grown weary. What an awesome church, amen? I like that kind of church. Solid, faithful, not floundering, continuing in, in the doctrine what they should. They have, a, they have a heart for truth. And then Jesus goes, and, and I'm just going to kind of ignore all the rest because that's so good. Is that what Jesus says? He says, yet I hold this against you. Whoa. He says, you have forsaken the love you had it first. You've left your first love. Anybody left their first love? Is this spirit speaking to you right now and saying, you've left me? You're doing all these things. You're enduring. You're in, 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 and in our minds, we go through that checklist in the first few verses. I've persevered. I've done through the hardships. I've, you know, I've done this and that and this and this. He says, yeah, but what about me? What about your first love? And he says, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things that, uh, you first did. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. I don't even want to know what that means. Let's just do verse 5, first part. Amen? I don't want anything, Jesus to remove anything. I want the full lampstand scenario, whatever that is. Go check out my, my Revelation study to figure that out. But... It is quite possible to be like this woman, tender and loving towards Jesus, demonstrating that you love him, and then to leave that place of worship, even though you work hard and you endure and all the rest, and you're just out of place. You've left your first love. It's, it's, it's possible to have that happen. Anybody who had that this morning? Doesn't take long, does it? And so Jesus says, remember, redo, repent, or he will remove. So I like the first three R's. Remember, redo, repent. Remember how far you've fallen. Like, remember, redo those first things 
when you first came to the Lord, you turned from those, the wickedness. You were in His Word. You are among His people. You just loved Him. You're, you're crying at His feet, all those things. Redo and repent. That means to turn from what you're doing and turn towards Christ. And then the, that warning, I will remove your lampstand from its place. Our place is in His presence. The picture of the church of the lampstands filled with the oil of the Holy Spirit, shining bright in a dark world. Jesus around that light loves it, fills us. Don't want to be removed from that. So remember, redo and repent. Therefore, I tell you in closing, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love is shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to sing among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? You see, they didn't love Jesus because they didn't have a clue about the depths of their debt. They just questioned his motives. Nor the one who sat and ate with them that could take away all their debt. They didn't realize who was in their presence. They were hardened to it because of their legal relationship with the Lord, with God. Verse 50, and, G- and, and Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And that's what saves a person from their great debt of sin towards God is faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing else. Faith in His finished work. That is what saves. There's a day of judgment coming when all of us will give an account for what we have done in our bodies. And either your sins have been paid or you will have a day of reckoning where you'll be uh, punished according to what you have done. Hidden, forgotten, all those things, God has a memory of those things. And He sent His Son to die to eradicate those from the, your, the penalty uh, of those things from your life so that we can live in grace. We can live in peace with God. So by putting our faith in Jesus Christ that He died to take away those sins, I have peace with God. And you do not have peace with God until you've experienced the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, Christ has died for your sins. Do you believe? That's the question. And if you don't, it's on you. But the Jesus is sitting at the table and he is willing to give it to whoever would call upon his name to totally remove the mountains of debt that you owed. He took it all upon himself. That's glorious. Not only did he die, but he rose again, that you would have eternal life. It's not just about taking away your sins. It's about giving you new life and make you born again. And now you live because you're changed inside and the religion flows out, not in. So why do I read my Bible? Because I love Jesus. Why am I hanging here talking to you right now? Because I get paid. I do it whether I get paid or I don't. I love Jesus. Amen? That's how we live. So let's pray. Lord, for the person in here who has been going to church and yet has never experienced your grace, has truly never put their faith in you, I ask right now that your Holy Spirit would provoke them to call upon your name. And your word says that 
In no way will you cast them out. And if that's you, call upon his name. Ask him to forgive you from your sin, but he's going to ask you to do something hard. He's going to ask you to turn from your sin. Not only confess it, but walk away from it. And that is what will separate you from an unbeliever, is that we forsake our sin and follow Christ. Repentance and belief in Jesus Christ. And so, call out to him in your heart. And then confess him with your mouth. Don't just keep it inside, but you've got to call it out. You've got to live it out and publicly forsake the old life and now follow Jesus Christ. And the Lord promises you will be born again, not of works, but that's a work of the Lord in your heart. And for the believer in here this morning, perhaps you were at that place once in your life where you were broken and you wiped the feet of Jesus with your tears and your hair. Remember, redo, and repent. And then a fourth R I want to add in there equals revival. (laughs) So Lord God, in your spirit, move deeply in the hearts of your people. Don't let us stay stagnant. Shake us and, and, and move us up, Lord. Cause us to go out into waters we cannot stand on on our own just by faith, Lord by trusting in you. Send us into the harshest places of the world, God, for your namesake, across the street, in our own homes, wherever it might be, God. We have these great debts that you cannot remove. We ask that by your power, you'd remove these things in our lives, lovelessness and drunkenness and all these things that that are struggling. We ask that you would just take them as we choose to surrender and follow you. And may your just love flow in this church. So we ask for these works to happen not by our own effort alone, but as we respond to what you say to us, Lord Jesus. And we ask this in your name. To your glory, Father. Amen.